some of what they're choosing us for is the fact that they can put their health information in a system like Valor with us for us to help them analyze and understand. Um, mm. And they feel in, in a funny sort of way that it's, it's you know, a more secure location for some of that information. On the podcast today, we welcome Pete Trainer, the CEO of Valor Health, an organization looking at how they can help triage through the use of technology. But we also ask the question, just how much data do we actually need to provide the level of care that patients are looking for? This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly tech podcast with myself, David Savage, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you a bit of technology news. So welcome to today's podcast. I'm again joined by Mala Morkin, uh, doctor, former doctor, now in the <laughs> private sector, but someone who understands a lot more about healthcare than I do, which is wholly appropriate for the subject of today's show. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's lovely to be back on. Thank you for having me again. And whilst it is Tuesday, let's be honest, we're recording on Friday afternoon. So looking forward to the weekend. Oh, cannot wait. I am so excited I, for anyone that... Uh, for anyone that it can't see me right now, which is everyone apart from David, I am holding <laughs> the biggest mug of tea you've probably seen. It's actually the size of my face. And is it builder's I, tea? Is it? Is it what? Sorry. Is it builder's tea or? Um, I'm not going to show you. I don't want to be judged. <laughs> well, no. Is, is it? Is it? Is it English breakfast? Is oh, it okay. Earl yeah. Is it? Well, okay. If if you'd like to know, it is English breakfast tea. I've still got the tea bag in because I didn't have time to take the tea bag out before. On you, you can do that. You know, it's fine. <laughs> I'm, really... I'm sure we can edit a short pause to allow you to take the tea bag out. <laughs> No, I'm just too excited to talk about this. So I've got uh, this brewing tea that's sitting. <laughs> right. It's going to be really bitter by the end of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. And what are, what are your plans for the weekend? We can we can kind of listen back to this on Tuesday and work out if it if it worked out the way you oh hope. Oh God. Right. Well, first of all, finish this cup of tea, and yeah. then um, I'm probably actually going to be working most of the weekend still. Because oh, fun. Yeah. But I'm um, I'm seeing my friends for dinner tomorrow night, which will oh. be nice. Um, what about yourself? Any nice things? I'm going and running 20 miles on Sunday. Oh, that's why you asked, because you're going to show off, isn't it, David? And there's you going for a run. Do you know what? I'm leaving this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't popped into my head until now. When I say run, it will be very slow. It's through the Surrey Hills with one of my best mates from when we were kids. And oh, uh, it's training for a, for a marathon in a, in a few weeks' time. We were like, we should probably get some miles under our belt, right? So wow. it's going to be very gentle. It's going to be very, very gentle. Have you got Where are you going family? out? Have you got your running gear? Sorry, have you got your running gear sorted? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I've I've got I've got massive amounts of geeky running gear basically all around me off camera. Um, Four pairs of running trainers down there, vests, bladders, yeah, all sorts <laughs> of random. Yeah. Anyway, you should do <laughs> an episode. You should do an episode on specifically tech for running, and um, you should you should get free 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 breeze in from tech companies that do running gear and then you should rate and review them this is a call to anyone that's listening that can donate my friend david some free running gear <laughs> i did actually, i did actually get in touch with garmin during the pandemic because I, I i i use garmin and they sent a report to all of their uh users about um the data that they were getting from the users worldwide during the pandemic which is quite interesting didn't hear back from them oh dead to me Although I'm still going to carry on using my watch. Anyway. 
Um, let's get on to today's interview. We'll hand over to Pete. He's the CEO of Valor Health. And then we will be back afterwards with some commentary on the interview. So joining us today, we are talking to Pete Trainer, the CEO of Valor Health. How are you this morning? I'm very well. Thanks very much for inviting me. No, and you're just back from Spain. So now now kind of locking yourself in for a couple of weeks. We are, yeah. We're in the uh, the this the obligatory quarantine 14 days uh just just in time to get the kids back to school we hope um but that's uh, <laughs> you know it's a it's a strange old experience uh, the world is going through right now i suppose there's the nice thing at least that whilst you have to quarantine at the minute you're not in a role that means that you can't carry on doing your work whilst you're in a situation well i mean ironically we've all been doing this um working from home thing or you know living at work uh since march anyway haven't we so it's yeah it's kind of a bit more of the thing that we've already all had a taste of it's not it's not kind of new and alien to us anymore yeah absolutely absolutely well look thank you for making some time uh to talk anyway oh, thank you for um, having me now your role at valor health valor before um i was introduced to you was not an organization i was familiar with so can we just start for anyone who's not heard of the business with an overview of exactly what you guys do yeah, 100%. Uh, so Valor uh, was founded in 2017 by a couple of incredibly um, astute visionary doctors. They had a, a vision for kind of online primary care. Uh, I think really before some of the big telemedicine platforms like Babylon and, and Push Doctor and Doctor Care Anywhere and people kind of uh, arrived on the scene in, in the, the way that they did, they had a vision for being able to provide primary care to people that couldn't necessarily get appointments down at their GP clinic. Um, the two founders uh, arrived at the concept. One is from a military background and is very um, into functional medicine and you know supporting people remotely anyway because that's what he does. And one is from... Uh, an American telemedicine background and they really came up with this idea and I joined them uh, about a year ago now um, they approached me uh, for years and years and years I've been running uh, AI design and data businesses and they approached me because they were looking for somebody who could really bring the business you know forward uh, with a slightly different vision or rather some kind of new momentum behind it uh, and it's been a, an incredible journey they are uh, an amazing bunch of doctors it's a real privilege to work and watch them work and um, the combination of, of my technical background and their kind of medical background, I think, is, is going to put us in a really good position in the next few years. So out of interest, how, how does it work? Is it similar to kind of, um, you, you know, you mentioned Bush Doctor and Babylon, where, where they're working with a primary care trust and, and integrating with those services to kind of augment the NHS? Or is it, is it a slightly different model? No, we're completely standalone. Um, we're not working. We complement the NHS. So what we what we noticed was that, you know, the, the, the NHS, especially before this year, really struggled with volumes. So we set ourselves up with a membership model, a very affordable membership model to try and pick off people that wanted private online health care um, for a small amount of money and probably to take them out of the NHS. We will do referrals back into the NHS when that's required. But the whole concept behind Valor was that, you know, we don't necessarily need to be an augmentation of a trust. What we could do is just form our own online clinic and take some people out of the NHS um, to free up space for people that are vulnerable or can't get appointments within the NHS. We do work with the NHS and most of our doctors and our locum uh, physician associates we call them and um, nurse practitioners and stuff have all got NHS background some of them still work in the NHS and they use us as kind of fill-in hours throughout the week but we're we're a standalone 
Um, it also means, I mean, we are regulated. It's a regulated business. We're regulated by the Care Quality Commission and, and all our doctors are UK licensed um, by the GMC, et cetera. Uh, but we're, we're kind of a, a standalone entity. We do it um, in our own way, on our own terms, uh, with our own membership base. Um, I, su- I suppose that's a, there's a nice bit of clarity there in as much as, you know, you think of kind of uh, health tech, there's that question mark about if, if public money ends up going to some of the health tech startups, but the health tech startups own the data. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Should the public not have some ownership in some of those? Yeah, definitely. But if, if you're not, if there is that, that distinction, then you don't have that same question mark, right? Definitely, definitely. I mean, we the data is a that's a that's a minefield area. We could talk about that one for an hour, but the, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, and that's obviously my background and passion point. We're um, we're incredibly aware of of the data and the ethics because it's health tech, because it's healthcare. It's just someone's most personal information. It's it's the things that that you know really drive them and keep them awake at night. Um, and so, yeah, that data ethics part. I mean, with I would argue we're probably more secure than some of the public health uh, data sets that are being generated. We've spent a huge amount of time and money, you know, on a, a system, a security system that is, is world-class. Um, and I, I, it, I think getting data in and out of the NHS is, is it, to your point, an absolute minefield. What we like is that we have a private membership base and we work with insurance companies and we work with businesses as well of people that are signing up with us to let us house their health data. So they're, you know, some of what they're choosing us for is the fact that they can put their health information in a system like Valor with us for us to help them analyze and understand. Um, mm. And they feel in, in a funny sort of way that it's, it's, you know, a more secure location for some of that information. They mentioned that, that there'd been kind of a pursuit to get you into this role. Yeah, you hadn't worked in in healthcare previously, but a couple of years ago, what twenty sixteen is it? You wrote a book, Hippo, yeah. uh, the human focused digital book, and I suppose the philosophy behind that would serve you quite well now in the field that you're working in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been criticism in the last kind of few years of people that move into healthcare roles that don't have, you know, healthcare backgrounds. Dido Harding just got the big job, didn't she, with with the government yes. and, you know, has come under huge scrutiny for coming from car phone warehouse or talk talk or whatever it talk was, talk, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, and where's her NHS background? And I I mean, I've had over the last 25 years, healthcare clients and worked with healthcare businesses and worked in mental health and for mental health charities, you know, extensively. I don't come from a, a health background, um, but I work with qualified doctors who guide me and do the, the, you know, professional services part of the healthcare. And so we're a really good complement with each other. That what Valor needed, they were a company, you know, formed by doctors with a technology partner that built the platform. What they needed was a different lens than healthcare. And so coming to somebody who's got an understanding of the consumer and the the you know the need within healthcare, but it's not necessarily from a healthcare background, was really important. And to your point, you know, the book that I wrote uh, in 2016, which feels like a lifetime ago now, and everything seems to change so quickly, it's incredibly out of date already. Um, was it was called Human Focused Digital because it was this philosophy that all systems that are built for whatever industry, be that health, financial services, recruiting, whatever it is, should be entirely focused on the human and not the you know, quote unquote user, 
because mm. these are vulnerable, fallible uh, human beings. These are people who need to be taken care of in a way that is, is far more ethical than I think the technology industry has really done up until this point, um, which is, in a weird kind of way, a complete gelling with the healthcare industry who take a, you know, a, a, an oath of ethics to do no harm. And so quite a lot of what I was writing about is that, you know, technology should start to, you know, be more like healthcare in that sense. And whilst you make the reference to Dido Harding, I suppose, again, it comes back to that thing, you know, Dido Harding has been asked to lead an organisation that's effectively replacing Public Health England. You yeah. are CEO of a private organisation. Yeah. That surely matters. And, and you know, I, I suppose healthcare professionals having the understanding that maybe they're not also business people is, is quite a, a good awareness to have. Yeah. And, and and also, you know, all of these businesses, I think one of the things that's, I don't like using words like failed because it, it, it's unfair, I think. But one, I think one of the things that may have failed in, you know, the NHS and, and healthcare, um, public health today is that they, they've not had their eye on the business side of it. Um, you know, businesses, in my view, if you're not a charity, a business makes money or saves money. Like that's what you're there to do. You're there to save the public money or, or make money. Um, and so I think there's been a lot of inefficiencies in public health because they've focused very much on the healthcare side of it and not the business side of it. Um, that's not to say that everything should be privatised. I'm not going to get into that debate. It's not where I stand. But I think, you know, at some point in the next few years, especially with everything that's going on at the moment in the bang in the middle of a pandemic, lots of questions are going to be asked about, you know, what the blend the formulation of healthcare teams should be in order to create the most efficient and um, logical and practical and useful healthcare services. One thing I want to get into, and I'm, I'm probably going to make a right hash of explaining this question, <laughs> so bear with me. Um, do people typically go to the doctors when there is something wrong with them? Yes. At the minute, uh, that can be quite a tricky thing because you might have something wrong with you and then you get an appointment three or four weeks later. By the time you get there, you actually feel a little bit better. And it's, it feels yes. kind of odd. Um, so I, I kind of am a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the idea that you can get online on a video call with someone and, and talk about an issue that you're having there and then. But I suppose from a, from a, a treatment point of view, it's not quite the same if you're not sat in front of someone and they can't get hands on and they can't really kind of look at your symptoms and so on. Do, do you have to do you have to operate a slightly different style of health care when you are um, going through a digital platform when you're not sitting in front of someone? You you sent an article in advance of this where you talked about uh, salutogenesis and that that sounds like a slightly different approach that might fit with the model of a digital healthcare platform? Definitely. Well, okay, so for starters, and I, I've obviously been on a, a real journey in the last 12 months learning some of this stuff, um, uh, and, and an absolute privilege that has been as well to, to, to be kind of watching doctors do their jobs in a completely different way than, than you would expect them to be able to do. The, we can pretty much treat, our doctors can pretty much treat 90% of the things that people would generally walk into a clinic to talk about. Um, it's very rare, you know, 10% of appointments you have of your GP, they will need to, you know, prod you, poke you, you know, put their stethoscope on you and and, and do those kind of things. Um, that's kind of traditional medicine. It's the way that it's always been done. Actually, most things are triage and diagnostic. So mm -hmm. most things that you, you know, um, arguably you could go down 
to the pharmacy and explain your symptoms and have them treat you without examining you, you know, with a with a medication and stuff like that. And we're encouraged to do more of that over the last few years. There's a lot that doctors can do without physically being in the space with you. And I think what's happened in the last five or six months, which has been incredible and amazing for a business like Valor as well, is that the public have woken up to that. Um because they've been getting their treatment in a way that, you know, they've not been having to get their treatment before and they're not waiting for it. They're getting kind of on-demand healthcare uh, from private businesses and the NHS in a way that, you know, people are going to start getting um, comfortable doing, which is phenomenal. I mean, there is 10%, uh, 10% plus of things that people will even book appointments with us about where we say, we're going to make your referral back to your GP. You need a, uh, you know, a physical, you need to be checked out. Um, but there's a lot that we can now do with with data diagnostics and uh, you know online consultations that I think traditionally people didn't think were, was possible. Our doctors are are trained by the founders to you know really adopt that mindset, and that's the other thing that needs to change. Healthcare uh, practitioners need to change their mindset that these things can be done remotely, and that you know looking at data that is generated or um, information that's supplied at the point of booking can help you diagnose things. This whole idea of salutinogenesis, uh, salutinogenic technology is something that we're pioneering, um, we're really on the frontier of at the moment. And it's this idea that you know between every patient and doctor can be a layer of data that is diagnostically helping the doctor to look for the root causes of a condition so that you know quite often they're not treating the condition itself what they're doing is helping you adjust your lifestyle to stop you getting sick again or to try and stop that condition happening again. Um, in traditional medicine, what tends to happen and has happened for a long time is you go, you get a 10-minute appointment, you sit in front of your your uh, amazing GP or nurse practitioner or whoever it is, uh, they um, identify, okay, it's you know this particular condition Here's a prescription. Go down to the pharmacy, get your pills, um, and then fingers crossed we won't see you again in a couple of months. And what tends to happen is that condition repeats, and you go back and you get into the cycle of the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. What we're trying to do is say, why don't we give everyone, you know, thirty minutes, twenty-five to thirty minutes per appointment, conversationally try and get to the bottom with the support of data and AI of of you know the things that may have even created the condition in the first place the causes of that condition and help you stop those causes from making the condition come back or or, you know look at the cause not the condition um and that's a that's a it's a very different mindset to medicine potentially than the things that we're all uh used to to doing and that's our salutinogenic model that's the the technology layer that we're we're kind of building out in the moment to help our our doctors really augment our doctors uh, and gps to help with that diagnostic side of things out of interest i mean how much how much data do you realistically need to start to make that kind of leap into here are the trends here's the learning this is how we can apply it to an individual i mean how many people do you need to to be customers on the platform for it to work uh not as many as you think we've i mean we've got let's have a think we've got uh, as of today i think there's about six and a half thousand private paying uh private paying uh members uh, of valor patients that we deal with sort of on a monthly basis there are another you know ten thousand um insurance customers that come through us there are another you know ten thousand uh, b2b patients mm-hmm. that are on our platform it, it it's a we're 
it's not like I use the word AI very loosely because this is like the, the little end of that wedge. This is natural language processing to pick out keywords, even in the things that you submit when you book your appointment that, you know, give the doctor some insight into what the causes of this condition may be. It's about the questions you ask people rather than this kind of big data sphere of, um, you know, machine learning that is diagnostically, you know, inferring that it's this, this, and this. That does take a huge amount of data, but we've got enough data. We're generating enough data to be able to do this very successfully. Um, And in the future, you know, we may get more advanced with some of that stuff. I'm actually quite nervous about this idea of businesses who claim they can get AI to do diagnostic medicine. You can do that with images and, and you know, um, mammary scans, uh, historical data, um, so on and so forth, very much on the kind of almost pharmaceutical and medical side of things. But I think on the primary care side of things, you, you, people are going to be really careful because you do need a ton of data and everyone's different and there's no, you know, one pen portrait that fits everybody. It's about yeah. augmenting uh, people. So, um, so it's, it's, it's very much the triage focus at the moment. At the moment, yeah, and uh, and actually, yeah. I think it's the other thing that I think is really important is that this technology is used to give. When I talk about giving doctors insight and giving doctors um, sort of additional background information, it's not just about healthcare. This is about letting them know um, the potentially, you know, how to deal with this patient, how to deal with this member in a way that is right for them. This is about understanding the human that you're going to be building a relationship with over this video or chat uh, or telephone technology, because we do all of the above. Um, it's about giving them some insight into, into the person so that they can deliver care better. Um, mm. The other thing that we do uh, with our, and we're starting to build like some really uh, simple, but brilliant tools to help our doctors with is, you know, we're, we're having the layer between the doctor and the patient do some of the note taking so that the doctor is looking at you having a conversation rather than down at a notepad or down at their keyboard, you know, making notes. So they're effectively curating the notes after the fact rather than during the conversation, which gives them time back to form that relationship with you. We're, we're actively looking at how that kind of salutinogenic layer between patient and, and doctor can do real-time translations and subtitles. So you make healthcare more accessible for people of, you know, who don't, who English is not their primary language or that have a hearing impediment. You know, there, there are things that you do between people that make both the patient and the doctor more efficient and more relaxed. That's what we're trying to do rather than saying, oh, here's an algorithm that's identified that you have X world or Z condition or it's COVID-19. Like you, you need a professional to do that diagnostic work but there's no reason you can't arm that professional with you know more insight than they've got at the moment look i think it's a fascinating area uh obviously it's very uh relevant for the times uh so i really do appreciate you giving up some time and talking to me this morning and fingers crossed it continues to go well thank you very much it's not, it doesn't look like the pandemic's going to go away anyway soon so uh we, we should no. be busy. <laughs> so we're going to be busy we are going to be busy but um i think it's also uh you know, we don't just do pandemic medicine. We're doing everything from mental health to physiotherapy. So um, I think we're going to be busy anyway, regardless of this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for your time, Pete. Thank you for having me.
Right, there's, there's a load of different places where we could start with this. I did quite like the line, and maybe this is pulling out from the middle of the interview and you might want to skip around to various different subjects, but I like the fact that when he was talking about his book uh, and the philosophy behind the book, Hippo, that he talked about healthcare professionals taking a code, uh, sorry, an oath of ethics and that tech should be more like health in that regard. And I sometimes wonder if health tech has not necessarily come at this from that angle all the time. I mean, that's a big question. I mean, that is like, a, like it's huge, isn't it? Is the ethics behind everything we're doing here. Because I remember when I was at med school, we had a whole module on ethics behind healthcare data and, you know, how you are as a doctor and how you must behave ethically. And mm. you don't get that training when you start a health tech company, do you? You don't get sat down and walked through the moral dilemmas of a healthcare professional. So where are we supposed to get that education? But fundamentally, if data can provide insight, and we'll come to primary care because it's a bit different, but if we're just talking about healthcare as a bigger picture piece and diagnosis, et cetera, if, if data can provide insight to keep people out of hospitals that is not available without it, surely that's worth pursuing even with concerns around ethics why surely why do you say surely because if it keeps people alive and keeps people out of hospitals and keeps diseases from becoming more prevalent in society and therefore takes strain off the nhs takes strain off the public purse i don't know it just it just it just it would seem to be that it would be a good thing it just needs tech and healthcare to work more carefully maybe without so much influence from policymakers who don't really understand what they're doing to mm -hmm. get this thing working properly. It's a really interesting thing because I think that in the UK as well, we're in a really privileged position that we've got the NHS, but also because it is led, you know, by the civil service and the government and it's, it's regulated in a different way to other countries, you see that actually maybe we're not taking some of the learnings that we should from other countries that they've got in the way that they've approached this exact question. But I always think, right, that you think the way that we're changing healthcare is ultimately going to be exceptional. I mean, like you think for five, 10 years time, the way that we're going to be speaking to a, um, to a healthcare professional, the way that we're going to be interacting, the way we'll be able to self-manage our own care, wearables, everything, our own data management platforms is going to be game changing. Mm. But at what cost are we aiming to get there at? And um, are we taking the patients on a journey with us, you know, to get to that point? Are we teaching them about the data that we're taking? Are we teaching them? Do they even want to know? Like all of these things as we get there, I think there are so many ethical questions. And once we get there, great. Then there's a whole new kind of worms. <laughs> what, I, what, I, what I like about Valor and that Pete mentions in this is there, I sometimes feel that, whilst uh whilst i'm a big fan of um of health tech offerings being used alongside the nhs to supplement and improve services and, and better patient outcomes there is a blurred line between mm -hmm. where these companies start and the nhs end or sorry where the nhs ends and these companies start mm -hmm. whereas with valor it would seem to be right from the outset they make it quite clear that they are a private company with private membership and people are choosing them because therefore they've put security first, they've thought about the technology problems first, but 
with doctors augmenting, guiding, and leading the organization in terms of what what that then means for the patient. And if you are upfront with the patient at the very beginning about what you are, surely it's easier to then take them on that journey because there are no sudden surprises of, oh, hang on, my data is being used how? But every, almost every, I'm going to say every, almost every health tech company starts B2C. It starts on a private model and it starts working fully privately. I mean, to get any example of most healthcare companies, they have started on a private model. You prove concept and then when you scale up, the NHS comes knocking on your door and is yeah. like, can we use this? And kind so, of white labeling. Yeah. And so I think that... Maybe, maybe their their choice is that they're not going to go down the NHS route ever. But if that does happen, they're going to fall into the same thing as every other company has fallen into, which is it is a blurred line. But that's just because of the makeup of our system. And I think that instead of perhaps, um, like maybe we should be excited by the fact that the NHS is looking to adopt these things rather than for the um looking for like is it x is it b does it fit in this box i don't know i don't know i don't know the answer and i think what they're doing is really awesome especially because they're looking for the causes of the causes right and they're looking to to understand the data that is really deep trends not just on the surface level of what healthcare is going but like understanding how you can really ultimately change that patient's outlook by understanding yeah. that data further now you're touching on this subject of salutogenetics. Yeah, the amount of times I hoped, hoped not to say that during this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> salutogenics. There we go. Um, how how did that did that that uh, kind of strike chord with you? Because you know the idea that that kind of go away, here's some pills. We'll look at it again, rather than looking looking at the cause. That people are just looking at the condition. Is that something that you kind of thought? Hang on, that rings true to the way that unfortunately. When I was in the NHS, I had to treat people because of the resources, because of the time, et cetera. Yeah, I, I mean, you're 100% correct there. I think it's I think it's changing. I think it's an awesome changing system and people are waking up to a more holistic approach of medicine. But for the past, you know, 40 plus years, our healthcare system has been dictated by pharmaceutical companies who put, produce the research, churn out the drugs, and then it goes into a guideline and it becomes our model of care. And being able to break that down and say, yes, pharmacy is one thing that we can provide the patient, but there is a whole host of other things that we can do to change lifestyle, behaviors, other things. I think that's the future, right? Because it's unsustainable with people living longer to be putting people on medications that maybe they don't want to be on for their whole life. And, and, and it's unfair to have that as the only option. I do, I do find it a tricky subject generally, right? Because out of the back of this pandemic, apparently trust in teachers has gone up through the roof. And there's wow. obviously a huge amount of respect for healthcare workers at the moment, but trust, trust in teachers has, has, has really risen. I kind of feel like trust in doctors themselves is being challenged at times. Like you go on Netflix and you start watching documentaries about veganism and things are presented to you as fact, but actually it's counter to what a medical professional might tell you. So how you get vitamins how you get you know a lot of these things are presented as fact in documentaries but then if you go and question them or there's there's some ambiguity there and i kind of feel you know if you look at anti-vaxxing which is just ridiculous but there we go and then you look at um how pills are prescribed and people questioning well hang on a minute should should i look at uh diet as opposed to 
medicine and all these stories around online of people who went, you know, what, I, I, I changed my diet and I wasn't getting better and all of a sudden I am better. All of this gray area gives room to the extremes like the anti-vaxxers, I suppose, to have a space to operate and to try and misinform and, 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 and I, I suppose ob- obscure the debate, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. And one of the things you guys talked about in the, in the episode was that everyone is different. And mm. the fact is, is that because everyone is different, medical education must be for um, a framework so that you can understand that everyone will think differently. There will be a whole host of different things that people will want to understand. You know, you talk about like veganism, things like that, like the documentaries. We don't get taught about healthcare nutrition. Uh, you know, and, you just, and that's the first thing you want to ask, right? You've got diabetes. You want to ask your doctor, what, what can I eat? And yeah. apart from being able to tell them, you know, stop eating this and that, you're you're kind of stuck there being like, well, I have no idea where to direct you to, no idea how to meal plan with you. I have no idea because I'm not giving that framework. And I think that, again, it's all about from the start, I think there's a disparity between what the patients know. When I say patients, I mean broadly what the general public know, where they're getting their information from, and the old school mentality of teaching that the doctors are getting. And until we match that up and we teach both sides about what the other people are learning and why and how, I think that there is going to be that friction and that lack of trust because the patients think the doctors are are looking away from certain um, anecdotal evidence and other things because they don't want to hear about it. When it's not that, it's that the way that we are taught at medical school is evidence-based, research-based. You must write a paper and it must be validated and we must be doing randomized controlled trials and that is how we're taught. So I think that there must be an openness and a kind of a shift in the framework of how we think. Do you think if, if the medical profession was more upfront about saying, hey, there are gray areas, we really don't think you should be doing this it might help control some of those extremes that we were talking about that are beginning to pervade kind of thinking and and could be quite dangerous everyone wants a different doctor so like some people want a doctor that will be upfront and honest and say you know what i'm not sure what you've got we're going to do some tests and we're going to find out and other people want like really arrogant doctors that are going to come in there and like bulldoze three but you know you have so much trust in that person because you're like they know what they're doing and that's what they want they want that paternalistic style and actually um that approach is really difficult to get right and so I think that for me, when I was practicing, I was very open, upfront, honest. I'd be like, look, I'm really not sure. I'm going to go and ask someone else. And But my colleagues would be behaving completely differently to that. So I think that um, it's not just a profession-wide thing we need to be doing. It's We need to be allowing professionals to f- be able to be vulnerable in the workplace because that's the only way that we're going to be able to make them not feel embarrassed that they don't know something. Which is crazy because everyone else in every other profession in life has to put their hands up and go, I don't know. And I suppose it's an argument for, for Pete's uh, point around being able to grow a relationship with a patient. Yeah. And my own experiences of doctors has always been if you can actually have a conversation and go, hey, what do you, what do you think? Because, you know, I'm at a bit of a loss here and I'm looking for a bit of guidance. And if a doctor turns around and goes, well, we, we don't really know, but we're going to try these things. And you kind of go, okay, fine. I get that. You're not You're not a robot. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting to hear a health tech company say we've got enough data. I think that's the yeah, first time I've heard anyone that. say that. 
exactly how much data do we realistically need well we're kind of there right that's that's the that's the thought is i don't know what do you think well look i mean he makes a really strong point for where it comes to primary care there's only so much data that you can really utilize right now and I like that they're applying technology to things like note-taking. Mm-hmm. To When we talk about technology augmenting what the doctor does, that's genuinely augmenting what the doctor does to allow the doctor to perform in a slightly different way rather than maybe overemphasizing the possibilities of what's available with technology today. Exactly. We're not replacing doctors, are we? We're, we're as you're saying, we're supporting and augmenting the experience. But for me, I... I think that there is so much to do with, first of all, just cleaning the amount of data that we've got in healthcare. We have got a lot of data, but we don't actually know, and, and the companies are, you know, are doing some really important work in this to find out what actually is usable, what's not usable, what do we need to be collecting in the future now? And I think that if anyone thinks that they have the answer to this, that no one has the answer to this you know this is a billion dollar question if someone had this answer of what what data is you know the most useful data in healthcare how can we collect it what is the best roadmap for this nhs x and beyond would have already done it and it's not as simple as that because as we said before everyone is different but what i love about this discussion is that if we there's no point like wasting time now if we've got enough data to get something rolling move the pin a tiny bit you know get to the next point then build then build then build we must take that approach as well and I love that and I think that sometimes in healthcare what we do is we wait for the big epiphany of you know this will be the thing that changes the way that we do healthcare and it's not that it's slow and steady and I think that that is a really lovely way to approach it. Look you're you're a healthcare professional you work in the private sector now working for a health tech organization as someone who's a, who's a former doctor who is trained as a medical professional when you look at these different companies and you decide who do i actually want to work for who upholds that ethical code what is it that you look for from these companies to go you know what, I, I i'm comfortable working here it doesn't go back on the reasons that i train to do what i do that's such a good question um and I suppose it kind of rings across different uh, specialties as well, not just health tech. I think the one thing is value alignment and that is it, right? So if you can hold a conversation with someone for an hour and be like, not, you know, feeling like it's an old friend catching up and that is what the kind of the interview feels like and talking about the company feels like and you can get excited and that's great. I mean, the most important traits um, that I look for anyway of is honesty and transparency. So if you can be honest with your team in a healthcare in a healthcare company, you can be honest with your patients. And mm. like really important, if you hide things in your team, then there's a very good chance that you'll be doing something a tiny bit shifty with your patients. So um, that's one of the big ones. And, and, and the other one is um, the patient-centered focus. So they're like the two really big things that I look for. The patient-centered focus, you can tell in a heartbeat. You can tell whether or not someone is driven by improving patient experience or not and um especially in some of the work I do um 
uh, some of it is linked to like cannabis tech you can see that um in that space as well there are some really interesting characters and you can tell really quickly right like who is in this because the word cannabis sounds really cool and exciting and who is in this because they care about the patients that they're that they're trying to innovate for so yeah patient-centered and transparent that's my two things Mala, thank you so much for giving up some time uh your tea is probably tanning it's heaven disgusting. it's really really bad <laughs> just I'm... make another one just yeah. make another one uh look yeah. if anyone's interested to hear more from you you do host a medical podcast what is it again remind us where we can find it it's the royal society of medicines digital health podcast um and you can find it on on all the normal platforms but now that you've probably heard how i make my tea i've probably not enticed any of you to come and listen so <laughs> well they're not having to have your tea whilst listening to it they can make their own and, and avoid very, your own mistakes it's very serious podcast though it's very serious <laughs> we talk about very serious things <laughs> maybe 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 the strength of a podcast should be measured on how badly wrong your tea goes during oh it. no <laughs> and if, the, if the tea goes really wrong well it's been a good podcast okay right. I'll, I'll take that then that, that's gonna yeah, be my new <laughs> i like that it's like a like a tannin level test anyway uh look thanks for your time uh we hope that everyone has a lovely week <laughs>